Welcome to the Mama Needs a Moment podcast. We're your hosts, Chrissy and Cindy, co-founders of Her Health Collective. We are two moms obsessed with revolutionizing the way moms take care of themselves. Every other week, we dive into the topics that matter to moms most, answering your most pressing questions as we learn from top-notch experts, swap stories, tap into our creative sides, and advocate for the causes that moms truly care about, all while hanging with your mom friends. We're so glad you're here. Let's dive in. Today, we have the pleasure of sitting down with Nicole Wallace, one of our beloved 2022 Her Expert panelists. Nicole's a licensed clinical mental health counselor with over 20 years experience helping adults and children with overcoming trauma, managing life transitions, and developing coping skills. She specializes in working with anxiety, depression, trauma, life transitions, and developing effective parenting skills. In our conversation today, no topic is off limits. Nicole shares her personal experience with infidelity and raising a blended family. We touch on being raised by a single mother, as well as raising a family in the United States as a Black Latino American. Nicole shares her insights on forming friendships in adulthood, navigating technology with our children, and dealing with negative self-image. Trust me when I say this episode is packed with life wisdom and moments that will make you stop and think. It's also just a really fun conversation. We hope you enjoy. Nicole! Hey, good to see you. (laughs) So excited to have you here. It is always such a joy to sit down and talk with you. I feel like you're just one of those real authentic people that just brings it. You, you always just tell it like it is and oh. share what we need to hear. So well, I know she's going to be, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for being here. I know this is going to be a good conversation. So we're just going to dive right in and we have some get to know you questions that we like to start with. So the first one is a fill in the blank. We like to start it easy. Okay. That's, that's <laughs> totally a loaded statement because this isn't easy, but <laughs> fill in the blank motherhood is motherhood is an adventure especially since i have a large family i never know what's going to happen each day so it's definitely an adventure you do and you do uh we were just talking about this before we started you have kids ranging in age from 10 to 26 is that right Mm -hmm. so that is an adventure i mean you are in the mix of all kinds of different things happening and dealing with, you know, like post, you know, perhaps college or work life. And then you have a child in elementary school. That's that's yeah. Still doing fractions and decimals and then trying to teach the other one how to balance their checkbook without. Oh, sheesh. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I guess for the younger one, you get to the point where you're like, I don't know if this is really applicable to the real world. Maybe we should, uh, But yeah. well, do, you, do you ever say, go ask your sibling? Oh, yes. Last <laughs> night. <laughs> yeah. I don't know this. Go ask your sibling. Yeah. That's, so, that's so true because yeah. they're closer to it. Like they've learned it more recently. It's probably, mm-hmm. speaking yeah. for myself here, I am not a math person. It's probably yeah. the new math too, right? They're, they're doing math in a whole different way. Like they're making a square to solve the problem. Like, I don't know what that is. So <laughs> I'm I'm so scared. We're not there yet. That's good. That's going to be Noah's department. I've already told him like math is yours, babe. (laughs) All right, Nicole, what do you value most 
in a friendship? Oh, good question. I would say kind honesty. Because I think um, some people bring honesty to a relationship, but it's like hard hitting those friends that are like, bam, in your face, you know, this is what I think, or that outfit looks horrible, or, but someone that can say something to me, be very honest about it, but do it in a way that's loving and kind. I appreciate that because I want the honesty, I, I, but I do want it delivered in a, in a way that's not going to crush me. So <laughs> I agree with you. I I appreciate that so much because there are some friends, there are some people I know that are brutally honest and Mm -hmm. there's an element of me that, yes, I appreciate the honesty, but I'm the first to admit that I'm a sensitive person. (laughs) So it it can hurt, but I think there's an art. There there is an art to honesty. There, There is a way that you can share and be truthful with someone buffer it in kindness yeah and I, I want like to be able to, to give that same thing back right like I want to be able to tell you something and for you to be able to receive it knowing that I care about you because I think a lot of times in relationships women feel like they're being judged by other women or they feel like that person's being vindictive and so yeah just really I want to be able to be able to say it to you nicely and I want to be able to for you to say it back to me nicely so yeah yeah and it's a mutual road I love that what is the most daring thing you've ever done? Oh, well, I have two for that. One is personal, which is to have children because coming from a single mother, that was like the last, I was like, oh no, this is so much work. Last thing on my list. And then I wound up with a really big family. So that's, (laughs) (laughs) and then recently professionally starting my own business. Again, not a place that I saw myself, but at this stage in life, it was the right choice for me to open a private practice in mental health. And it has been awesome, but yet scary. And so, yeah, those, those two things. Yeah. Those are definitely two very big things too. Mm. Uh, all, all life consuming there, <laughs> starting yeah. a business and having a family. What advice would you give your younger self? I would, I would tell her to take more risk because I think I, again, I came from a a single mom and a very poor neighborhood. So a lot of times I took very calculated moves, always thinking about either personal survival or basic needs. And sometimes I didn't take the risk that I probably could have. And I, I see my kids now, especially my daughters, like they don't have some of those struggles and they're like doing everything. They're trying this, that, like, and I think it's awesome that to be that young and be able to just experience life in that way. Wow. That actually really resonated with me. And I've never thought about it in that way. I actually was also raised by a single mom and I've never, I don't know that I've ever shared this before, but I actually grew up, I grew up in a trailer park and I I still get really sensitive about like jokes about trailer parks and you know, everything, but I agree with you. I, I feel like I've taught myself over time to take risks, but it, it is really hard. I, I think seeing the struggle of your mom in that way or your parent in that way, it can kind of really put a lot of fear into Mm. who you you are, you know, and taking that next step or putting yourself out there. So I appreciate that. That really resonated. Oh, I'm glad you used that word because I think for a long time, I didn't understand that that's what it was, that that I was experiencing fear and anxiety. I thought, well, I'm just being safe, you know, 
but a lot of decision making was based from a fear based place of scarcity or am I going to be able to take care of this well if this runs out well will I be able to manage it and in doing that I think I missed out on some opportunities but I'm where I'm supposed to be so it's a good thing it sounds like you are too yeah yeah we I, I feel like we we all wind up there in one way or another somehow yeah it's such a great transition into my question for you because you have an interesting background, including time in the military. You've obtained two bachelor's degrees as well as a master's degree, and you spent time in the education sector prior to becoming a mental health therapist. And Nicole, you're also a mom to six children. Just super intrigued and would love for you to take all of us on a journey through your past. Was there a specific event or experience that guided you toward becoming a therapist? And how did the birth of your children and various different events influence this path? Yeah, so it definitely, as you read it off, I'm tired. (laughs) (laughs) Y'all, you're taking you back to your... But it's been a, it has been a journey. Survival and there, I, huh? Yes, yeah. And I just turned 50 this year. So it's like, oh, this is definitely a milestone year to reflect on life, you know. Again, coming from a single mom situation, my parents separated early before I was five, I think. And uh, so my dad was not, he was in the military. He was not very active in our lives. And so when I graduated high school, I knew that was a choice for me though, that would take, that would eliminate a lot of problems. But also I always had the need to serve, always been that person that wanted to care for others or do something. I do something that had a purpose at the end. So joining the army uh, supplied both of those, right? It gave me the the survival skills that I needed to take care of myself, but also gave me an opportunity to serve my country. So that was a really good experience. And I was in during Desert Storm. I didn't see active duty, but I was in Germany at the time. And just being in that environment where you're like preparing for war or realizing that you are on the front lines of something that's about to occur and that you could possibly put in a very harmful situation, it made me really take a toll on on what it is I wanted for my future. And I I realized I still wanted to serve, but I didn't want to do in the Army. So I started filling out college applications while I was still overseas, and I got the opportunity to come back to Connecticut. They offered free tuition, and I decided I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to do something which I could serve back to the, especially kids that came from where I came from. So I returned to actually to my old community, living in the city, urban children, which was my passion to help kids that look like me. So that's what I did. I got a degree in education and psychology. Uh, But I realized I was the teacher that would stop the lessons to talk about your problems and like we needed to process things and (laughs) I needed to know like what you needed. Could I get it for you? And I'm shopping for the kids after school. And although it makes me a very caring teacher, it doesn't move the curriculum along. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) I'm I'm sure you were everybody's favorite teacher, though. Oh, yeah, I, I have some really good memories of the children that I have been able to be a part of their education. And so uh, we decided to relocate here to North Carolina. My husband's from Alabama, so this is kind of like a midway point from both those places. Uh, so this, this, this really worked out. But when I was teaching here in North Carolina, 
I got an opportunity to work with the school counselor there. And I realized I wanted her job. Like, this was great. She got to spend all day talking to the kids about their problems and working on their family situations. And uh, so I started grad school at that point. And I then I became pregnant in the midst of all that. And my pregnancy was a high-risk pregnancy. I wound up with preeclampsia. The baby was born two months early. And it really helped me redefine, like, what it is. What am I doing here? Like, I, because I thought I was going to be that person to have this baby return to work, finish the year off. <laughs> I was like, no, that's not happening. So it gave me an opportunity to say, you know what? I really want to stick to grad school. I'm going to focus on grad school. I'm going to focus on my family. And I'm going to let this uh, career piece in this respect of teaching go for a while. And that's what I did. And then the kids kind of came back to back after that. Uh, we adopted a child, a relative, and then we also had another child. So by that time I had three kids. And then in the midst of all that, in the middle of our marriage, we kind of uh, hit some rough spots because we have been together since we were 22 and 23. I mean, my marriage suffered, uh, struggled with infidelity. My husband had an affair, child came out of that. And it caused our whole family to just take a pause and try to reflect on, like, where are we going? What are we doing? And how are, if we're going to stay together, how are we going to incorporate um, this new person into our lives? Because he deserves also to be part of our family. So in doing that, we decided, hey, well, we'll have another child and part of the reconciliation. I, I know that's the whole thing, right? But <laughs> God has a uh, sense of humor. Life has a sense of humor sometimes. And out of that, we got two children. Uh, which brings us to the lucky total of six. And I took another break from work at that point from school counseling. And each time it just has really helped me go, what's important here? Where do I see myself? And being home with the two little ones, I got to do some really cool stuff. I got to mentor moms. I joined some mother's group. I became president of one of the local groups that I was in. I got to go and work at a women's shelter and work with abused women. Uh, so I got to do some things that really were close to my heart and really were my passion now at this stage in my life. And then recently I opened my own private practice to really focus on servicing women who are suffering from anxiety and depression and really bring not only some of my own lessons in life to therapy or to the practice, but also bring maybe some problem solving skills and some ways of bringing, being an unbiased opinion in hearing people's stories. And I'm really excited about that. I'm so grateful. All of us are so grateful for you being open with your story and just sharing everything about it. Infidelity is so common, but not talked about. And we just appreciate your honesty with that and that you just embraced your children, your family member, you, you just, you saw, you got a heart of gold. I mean, you just have oh. such. <laughs> well, you're getting heart. the modified version, Cindy. It wasn't, <laughs> this has been year, years of work. <laughs> so, That's you know, okay. my, like I said, my oldest one is 26. Uh, the other one's 21 and then 18. And then uh, the middle one is 14. And then the younger two are 10 and 11, 18 months apart. So I've had lots of time to work on it. 
<laughs> and for the longest time, I would even say I had five children because I raised five children in my home. And then one day, my uh, then eight-year-old, she goes, you don't ever, you don't tell people that you have six. I said, well, you know, I do have six, but I, I don't always think of it that way because he's not always in our home. And she goes, well, you do have six. And I say, well, <laughs> you know, that is true. So, you know, I think each step of the way, every year, I feel like I'm growing and embracing our truth as a family, my truth as a woman, my truth as a parent. And it's, it's not it's not always magical. It's not always pretty, but <laughs> but it has it has been my feeling that the more honest that we can all be about our stories, even for my kids, when they have to explain things to people or they have to you know, some people ask them, well, how many brothers and sisters do you have or and them having to guide that? I have to be the model for that, because if I'm not, then they will feel insecure, I feel, and they will struggle with it with that. And I don't want that for them. Mm, yeah, sure. And one of the pieces that you said in there was that you've done a lot of work. And so I'm assuming that you have, you're a therapist, but you also must have your own therapist. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So throughout the years, yeah. And even marriage counseling, I think that when my husband and I decided we were going to stay together, we immediately realized that we needed to get help because we have been working on it all this time and something was still broken, right? So we couldn't like just reconcile and say, we're sorry and go back to the way that we were or the patterns that we had. So we've actually been to therapy three times, even out, you know, throughout the years, not just like three times, one session here or there, but like three different therapists, three different stages of life, that kind of thing. So I encourage anyone who's in that position, don't try to go it alone. It's it's hard, even if you love each other, even if you could get past whatever it is or, or find forgiveness in order to process it, to look at all the different aspects of why infidelity occurred or insecurities that each person has, like you, it's really helpful to have another person in the room. Yeah. I, I absolutely agree. I find that therapy for couples is so, oh, it just helps you to build stronger roots. Even if you're having just small issues that you're struggling to work out, or, you know, you just need a little bit of a refresher on how to effectively communicate with each other. That's really important. My husband and I went to therapy after each child was born, just Mm. because there's such a shift in the dynamic of the family and in trying to just figure out how to make that work. And so periodically we do go back. I mean, we, and we love each other very, very much. And we, we have no intention of, of separation or anything. It's just more going, getting those refreshers because after a while you fall back into patterns that might not effectively work for the both of you. And there's two people in the relationship too. So you have to really evaluate what you're bringing to the relationship and not only point fingers at what your partner might be doing in the relationship that's affecting it. Oh, that's huge, right? Especially I found that in dealing with infidelity, that the infidelity was a symptom of of something that was broken between us or, or things that we each had going on where we weren't communicating. I know for some couples that's not true, but for us, that was that was the, the thing, like poor management of feelings, poor management of communication and emotions, 
And I had to take responsibility for the part where I played in that. Not that I'm responsible for the actions, how, how he decides to handle himself, but I am responsible for what I bring to the relationship. And I think therapy helped us process that. We had to back up before the infidelity, what was happening with us and what did that look like for us and work on those issues. So, absolutely. It's what I have found through having more of an external view into our relationship is my husband and my brain work so differently. We process and communicate so differently. And so something that I say, he takes, I might mean it one way, but he takes it a different way. And we both feel appreciated in different ways and everybody feels loved differently. So um, yeah, therapy is great all the way around. And I guess my follow-up to that, Nicole, would be if we've got a listener that would like to have therapy, they their partner, they just need a refresher or, you know, maybe they are having some more intense hurdles in their relationship, but they don't have the means of of being able to make it happen. What do you recommend to people who might not be in a financial position to do that, to be able to have therapy and, and whatnot? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. So I know when we first started, one of the things, our faith is important to us. So we did start in a faith-based counseling situation and that was actually free. Um, So if you are affiliated with a church or a religious organization, that might be a great place to begin or at least to kind of get things out and and put on the table what's occurred. And I know some people that's difficult because they feel that they might be judged within that community or that they don't want to share their information within the setting of their religious family. And so that can be tough to do. The other thing is that there are sliding scale organizations out there or even therapists who will meet you on a sliding scale. So asking, inquiring about that when you do searches on the directories like Psychology Today or things like that. There's also also a place called Open Path Collective. They offer really reduced rate counseling as low as $30 per session. So that is also an outlet. So I think you know, to really, you have to get out there and look. Also, luckily, online is such a great tool these days to look into those things. But asking the therapist too if they'll offer a sliding scale rate. Nicole, first, I agree with everything Cindy said, and thank you so much for sharing so many aspects of your story. In thinking about infidelity and thinking, if there is a listener out there who is maybe grappling with this themselves right now, and and the kind of what those emotions would be as you're dealing with dealing with this. Did you and your partner reach a point where it is no longer a big elephant in the room? I, I mean, did you, did you reach a point where it's, it's in the past and I don't know if it's forgotten, but it's forgotten. Do you know what I mean? Like it, it's not, I, when I, when I think about yeah. it, I think about it as something that does it just keep coming up in the relationship? And is there hope for someone that really wants to stay in this relationship, but is maybe grappling with that? I'm, I'm just very interested in where you are right now with that. Okay. Yeah. So for me, and I, I can't speak completely for him, but uh, for me, it was, a, it was a traumatic event. So, and then being a therapist and understanding trauma, lots of times our trauma does not go away. We still have triggers, things pop up or occur. The fact that, you know, for many people, they experience infidelity, they move on and 
yes, it, it can show up in their relationship, but they don't have the physical evidence or the symbol. And so having a child come from that relationship, it really has that effect. Like you have to you address it. You have to, if you're going to have a bond or build that relationship, which was what we chose to do with our kids. So even now, like my younger two, they weren't born when it occurred. Um, so in now as they become to understand relationships and they're looking at their family tree and they're like, oh, you know, well, he doesn't share the same mommy as we do, but he shares the same daddy. And then we have to address that, have that conversation. It, that can be triggering at times. And it's something that we have to be willing to be uncomfortable. My husband and I, in that space, we have to be willing to have those conversations. So I would say that if you think when you reconcile that it's just going to disappear or it's going to become so far back in your mind that it doesn't even pop up, that has not been my experience. I know there's some books out there. The My Husband's Affair was the best thing that happened to me was one I read or something. <laughs> I'm like, you know, there are, there are some characteristics or things that you build in your spirit or in your character. But every day to get up and commit to the relationship and understand the bigger picture of why we're together has been my experience because I think with trauma, you it just doesn't go away. It just doesn't disappear, whether it's been the death or the loss or a car accident or this experience of infidelity. Sometimes you will have those reoccurring moments, but if you're willing to work together, if your partner is willing to talk about things with you, that seems to be where the most helpful repair can be done in a relationship. Yeah. That, that open communication is, is so important and being able to have that honest conversation. Switching topics just a, a little bit, still kind of in the vein of mental health, obviously. According to your website, Daniel Freeman, Oxford University clinical psychologist, analyzed 12 large-scale studies and concluded that women may be between 20 and 40% more likely to develop a mental illness than men. That's crazy. That's crazy. According yeah. to Freeman, women tend to view themselves more negatively than men. And I think we can see that, like, I, 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 especially in things like the workplace or just how, you know, a man, and this is obviously generalizing, it does not apply across the board, but how a man walks into a room versus how a woman walks into a room, or if you're in like a corporate meeting setting, just the ways in which a man presents himself. And he could, I read this book, it was so fascinating and the name completely escapes me at the moment. So it makes it a really bad story. Sorry. <laughs> but the whole principle of it was that like a man was in this meeting and he had zero idea what he was talking about. He had no stats to back him up, nothing, but he was so assertive in how he was talking about everything. And in the same setting, in the study, the woman knew at like, she knew her stuff. She knew what she was talking about, but she wasn't confident. I think it was like the confidence code. Mm. Oh, it's, it's coming to me. It's a really good book. I highly okay. recommend it. You rem remember it. Even though I can't think of the name. <laughs> Right. Um, I think it was. I think it was the confidence code. I was obsessed with that book for a really long time, but it, it's it's a study from there. I'm, I'm like 90 percent sure, y'all. But anyway, <laughs> it, but it, it's true. It, it plays out in so many ways, and this is a vulnerability factor for many mental health problems. 
we see this all the time with women we interact with through her health collective and, you know, especially Cindy and I used to both work in the fitness industry. Why do you think women tend to view themselves more negatively? And what are some actionable things a person can do starting today to combat a negative self-image? Yeah. I think that we are so often taught from the very beginning to be nurturers, right? Like we are given dolls and houses and as women or people who identify as women, like that's our area where we play and we grow and we, and it's not a bad thing at times to be a nurturer or a caregiver, but in being conditioned to be taught to think about others all the time it really takes a toll. And then you add in the piece, if you have a family and you have a career, now you have two different settings where you're being pulled to think about the needs of others. And so it can be very taxing, not to say that men don't have struggles, because I think they do. And I want to make sure that we get that out there, that their struggles can just be different and they show up in different ways or people who identify as male energy or men. But for women, generally, as you said, That seems to be a big experience. So a lot of times with my clients, I'll talk about, well, let's talk about finding yourself in things that you enjoy doing. And some of them can't even tell me what they like. Like we'll talk from food to sexual positions to entertainment. They don't even know because they haven't taken that. They've been so focused on what somebody's dietary needs are in the household or what they need to do to please this person or how they need to go to this activity and sit at baseball, but they don't even like baseball, but the kid does. And so we have to take a moment and just really learn what is it that we like? What do we like to eat? What do we like to read? What do we like to to do? And then nurture those aspects of our life. And then I think my big third part is that most women are usually very connected to others. Like we feel our best when we're around someone who gets us, right? So finding those nurturing relationships. And so that's why I think your group is so wonderful because you're bringing, especially if the person is stay at home or if they're a first time mother, you're bringing them together in these groups where they actually might find someone who gets them or can connect with them. And it's so important that we do that. This episode is sponsored by Her Circle, the supportive and welcoming community for moms created by Her Health Collective. Her Circle is a welcoming and supportive community for moms who are passionate about making change for themselves, their families, the community, and the world. Together, this village of women are revolutionizing the way moms take care of themselves. From an active, private online community and the incredible daily chats hosted there, to our many virtual gatherings, including support groups, mom's night out, volunteer opportunities, book club, family adventures, coffee chats, and so much more. We love providing moms the chance to connect and create authentic relationships with one another. The network of experts in her circle are a phenomenal resource and provide great learning experiences for moms on topics ranging from women's health to parenting. We cover the issues that matter to moms the most, from virtual expert Q&As to one-on-one Wellness Minute consultations and support groups. We are committed to getting moms in front of the information, experts, and support they need most. To learn more about Her Circle, head to www.herhealthcollective.com slash her-circle. We have a limited number of spaces and the doors only open a few times a year. 
So be sure to add your name to the no obligation waitlist so you are the first to know when the doors officially reopen. Absolutely. I specifically when you said a mother, a woman might not know herself and it immediately made me think of motherhood and how in motherhood, so many of us, not all of us, but so many of us lose ourselves because it does become about keeping this little human alive, running from point A to point B, dealing with all these things. And we have talked to countless mothers who say something along those lines. Like I I used to be this way, but I don't know who I am now. I don't know who I am anymore. And that really struck a chord with me when you said that, because it is a, a common thread, a theme that we have seen in talking to all the moms that we we speak to very regularly. And the other piece you mentioned, the community, the connection, what we have found is that that is a great way to get back in touch with yourself. It is also things like experimenting and trying new things and getting in touch with your creative side. But when you can do all of those things in community and in connection with other moms kind of in a similar boat or on the same page as you, there's a lot of power in that. There's a lot of of strength that you can pull from that. And it can kind of become fun at a certain point to try to figure out who you are in this new stage of life. And it might not be the same person that yeah. you were. Isn't I mean, that, true? <laughs> <laughs> that is so true. <laughs> you know, I, I think a lot of women, girls in, in college, like there is a little, maybe not all, but that there's more confidence and, and you know, just sass and who you are. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm just purely speaking for myself here. I don't know. But when I became a mom, I feel like I lost a lot of that. And I'm, I'm trying, I'm like crawling my way back up the mountain of confidence, trying to get my confidence back in, and all these things. And I've realized like, I feel confident in certain areas, like mm. in business and in work. I, I know that I'm good at what I do and I feel confident there, but then Oh, and everything else, like as a parent and as a friend and as, you know, like self-image body, like all of that, like the confidence is just, you know, you know went yeah. out the back and, door. So. And that's a real thing to recognize that self-esteem may not be equal in all aspects of your life and to be okay with that, right? Because those are areas that you can grow in. So maybe at work I show up and I know what I'm doing and I have this super focus, but we go to the beach and I have to put on a bikini and my whole thing changes. Right. So I think for all of us, those are aspects in which we, uh, we all have certain parts of our life in which we're doing really well and really feel like we're present. And then other aspects where we probably could use some work or just can some self-reflection. Yeah. Yeah. And Nicole and all the listeners, I know you are on the edge of your seat about the book that I mentioned earlier. So (laughs) I looked it up. I looked it up. It's the confidence code. It it was that the confidence code, the science and art of self-assurance, what women should know. It's by Caddy Kay and Claire Shipman. And I'm obsessed with the book. I listened to it while walking during the thick of the pandemic and it was a good listen. So I'm going to check it out. I'll throw that out there. Yeah, we did it. I knew you were on the edge of your seat. Yeah. Nicole, you had, we had talked a little bit about this earlier, saying that your kids were 
they range in age from 26 to 10. I do want you to go through all of those ages again in just a minute. So maybe after I ask you my question that you can can do that. We'll quiz you. Okay. <laughs> Hopefully I'll get it right because sometimes I forget birthdays I and everything. So <laughs> but by saying that 26 to 10, that's a huge range right there. So you have experience with each stage of the parenting journey, but parenting is an area that a person can't literally, I, I, you can't become proficient in because just when you think you have something figured out, your child will hit another milestone or phase or age-related hormonal change, and then everything changes again. And then you've got each child is their own person. So something that might've worked for one child might not work for another child. And then even in all of that, you've got societal influences that affect your parenting. You most likely have seen a difference in parenting your oldest versus what you need to focus on with parenting your youngest. So for example, when your 26 year old was eight, it's a lot different nowadays than when your 10 year old right now was used to be eight, if that all makes sense. Yes. Because things change so rapidly as research studies are done, various inventions like iPhones, Androids, you know, <laughs> public safety, talking about sex, their civic education, media literacy. Oh my gosh, I could go on and on with the stuff that's changed over the years, just since we had our 11 year old. It's, it's crazy. Let's have an honest, open conversation between all of us about things that people don't often talk about with parenting. What topics and stages have been challenging for you to parent? Have you needed to shift how you approach sensitive topics with your kids as each child develops that may not have been as complicated as with a prior child due to societal changes, et cetera? Yeah. So it's a running joke in our house that we are not the same parents that we were when the older ones were born. That's so my, true. My, <laughs> My Even in like two years, it changes. <laughs> yes. My 21-year-old is quick to point that out. She's like, you are not the same people, and you did not give us these same privileges. <laughs> You're harder on me than you were on them. You're like, yeah. oh, I'm just, I'm more tired. Yeah, so, so yeah. like, it's life. You'll be all right. Yeah. So, 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 yeah, definitely some changes. So, so just to run through, I have the uh, 26-year-old, and he's, he is a relative, my nephew, but he is definitely our child. Um, and he graduated from high school, went to the military, and now lives in Colorado on his own, doing whatever people do when they're 26 and living in Colorado. So, so, so that's exciting to have someone oh you know, so, so far away, but I still get the phone call, you know, what are we doing for this, sir? Can you give me this advice? And so that's a different stage of parenting, right, to now be more of an advisor, rather than giving more directives. And I, I really enjoy it. It's, it's a different kind of bond. Then I have a 21 year old who's at UNC Charlotte. And um, so she's coming into her own, still very attached to us financially, but <laughs> coming into her own. <laughs> Looking forward to that graduation. And then I have one that just graduated last year. She's now at NC State and she's in the biochemistry program. And uh, she's just becoming more of a woman every day and just making these choices that are just really knocking us off our feet to see her. Cause she was one of those ones where I had to check her homework like every night. <laughs> so, 
And now she's in bioengineering. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so, so you never know where they're what they're going to do. And then our 14 year old who like there's the child that came from the infidelity. He visits us frequently, but it's a different style of parenting in that respect, right? Because his mom does an awesome job and she's on top of her game and he's just a fabulous kid. And I really feel like it's really cool for him to come over and we just kind of just love on him and hear about his day and how things are going for him. And then I have my two little ones, one in middle school in the sixth grade and one in elementary school in the fourth grade. And that's big transition times as well. So it is definitely interesting and it keeps us all on our toes and it keeps our Google calendar completely full. <laughs> so- I can but, imagine. Holy yeah, smokes. Yeah. But in looking, reflecting on the different, the, the changes, I would definitely say, I think we can all relate to that electronics and be the access to the internet, even just the pandemic, right? Before the pandemic, I used to be like, screen time needs to be limited. And <laughs> now it's like, have you not looked at your screen? <laughs> are you looking, are you keeping up with this, this, that? Or, you know, that's a, it became a major outlet for entertainment, education, even communication with family members. So yeah, I think I've definitely shifted in how I parent around internet guidelines and rules and having those conversations about screen safety and about interaction with others. That conversation was always in place, but the amount of access now that the little ones have compared to my older ones is completely different. And I think, do you all relate to that as well? Oh my gosh, Nicole. I, I think I talk to Chrissy like every day telling her, I don't know what I'm doing around electronics. I don't know what kind of parental regulations need to be put on these things. And maybe, maybe you could give us some advice at the end. Stay tuned. Yeah. Luckily I'm married to somebody who works in it. So I'm like, he can take care of a lot of the blocks and (laughs) stuff like that. It's a balance. Um, So that part, I think socially too, it's, it's been a bit different with the younger ones. I returned to work when they became school age, elementary school age. And so that was a huge shift compared to when I was at home with the older ones for almost eight years. So they had me on the front lines of every activity, every event, you know, what could I do to help or volunteer at this spot or that they were at? And that's very different for the little ones. They have the experience that I get up in the morning. We all get together. We all head out of the house and I may or may not make it home at the same time that they do. And so in looking at that, their friendships are a little different, who they are able to communicate with. As a stay-at-home mom, I found that oftentimes our friends and their friends were connected, right? Because I'm hanging out with you at the playground or I'm volunteering over here. And so those two things kind of meshed. And now that is not always the case as a, as a working mom. Like they have some friends that I have to really stop and say, well, who are you spending time with? <laughs> what did you do with this person? And you know, what do you like about that? I have to start asking more of those open-ended questions so it's, it's, that's been a really interesting aspect of parenting within those two timeframes of my journey in motherhood. Yeah. What about civic education? Because there has been a huge shift since everything happened with George Floyd. And I've felt the shift. I'm sure the entire community can feel the shift. Is that different from your oldest to your youngest kids? Well, I think speaking as a 
a person of color, Black Latino American, in our family, having those discussions about voter rights, about how your vote affects the world around you has been part of our, our general mm-hmm. family connection and how we come to the table. So with my older ones, that conversation was always on the table. We talked about voting. We talked about safety. We talked about what it meant for you to walk into a room and be a person of color or a Black person and what that would mean to others around you. So for us, that was kind of our our regular day. I think having things in the news during the pandemic, seeing um, marching, things like that, kind of gave frontline current event to those conversations that we were already having, if that makes sense. Mm, Absolutely. And then the other thing I wanted to ask you about is your talks with your kids around sex education. I've spoken to, because we're entering into the phase where, you know, it started off where you would just name the parts. And so they know the anatomy, but now you actually have to start talking functionality of the parts. Like this is what happens when babies are made and, you know, all of that. And I've talked to several moms and they're like, oh, I never learned about it from my parents or I, I found out from a book or my parents just never talked about it versus this generation where we're more open about it. And there's, you you have to talk more about consensuality and body respect and that it's, you know, open it up to various different genders. And do you feel that too? Like how? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. So we were, I think that what you said really resonated with me because my mother, I think, never had a conversation with me around uh, sexuality or gender preference or anything like that, or even what to do or safety. Can I learn from my friends or conversations with girlfriends? Right. So I was very intentional, especially coming from the world of education to do what you just said. We talked, you know, early on having the kids name their parts and speaking about that and being very open about if something's happening with your body. But I do think there is a huge shift, even on media or television. We were just watching some show on TV the other night and like right in the middle of it, there was a it was a cartoon even and there was a relationship put in place that was same sex and it was like okay well let's stop and have a conversation about this let's explore this what do y'all know or even at school my my middle schooler was given a survey asking where he found himself on on the gender scale gender fluidity which I was like I wish they would have asked me first or sent a letter home before (laughs) it's at the kitchen table. And he's like, yeah, today I was asked if I was male, female, or didn't know. And I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. So so I don't know if anybody else has had that experience in the public school system. (laughs) So so I think we do have to be very intentional. I agree with you on having those conversations age appropriate, but early on, I would say as, as soon as five and six that you start talking about relationships and not, you know, like I said, age appropriate and asking them, asking open-ended questions about what they know, how they view their world. And I think that will really guide us as parents about what your next steps are, because if you can gauge where they're at developmentally, then you'll know what you need to provide. And that's that's been my experience. Yeah. That's such a good point to at least begin having the conversations because sometimes it's taken out of your hands, like just happened with you with the survey and your child is more thrown into it unexpectedly. We, we had that happened as well, where she saw something online, of course, with like, edu- you know, the, the digital age 
And it made us have to progress faster with how we were presenting this information to her. And I was really, this made me feel so good about her health collective and what Christy and I built because I was able to go back to a former panelist uh, that we had on with relationship restoration. And I, my husband and I sat down with her and we were like, okay, in these times now, these, you know, 22,000, <laughs> how do we talk about sex with our kids? What, what do we say? And her biggest advice was you need to be open about it and just make it regular conversation so that they feel comfortable talking to you about it so that they know that you are a safe space to come and talk. And then the other piece she said was to not only give it to them in piecemeal because it's, you know, what they can handle at that time, because after a while, they're just going to be like, whatever. And <laughs> they're not interested, <laughs> you know, to a certain extent, if you get too scientific, you know, at the, when they're not ready for it. But she said, an important thing to let them know is that sex is supposed to feel good mm. and it's supposed to be fun. And she said, they found that if kids are told that, then any type of abuse or sexual problems, they are diminished, I guess, is a, is a better way to say it. There's a, a lower risk of it because people go in knowing that it's, oh, this might not be what it's supposed to be like, or. Mm. So if they're getting those warning signs, those body yeah. sensations or thoughts, then they know that this is probably not a safe space. Yeah. Exactly. I think that's a big part of uh, sex education too, is that even in the school curriculum, there's this whole part about anatomy and how your body works. But with sex, right, there's this huge emotional piece as well as the physical health piece. And as parents, I think it's our responsibility to bring both of those to the table uh, in a, such a conversation that you were talking about, because we want our children to understand their bodies, but we also want them to understand all that the emotion that sometimes a sexual act or even in, even viewing something that seems sexual on TV or on the internet can bring. And what does that mean for you? And how are you experiencing that? And really wanting them to be in a safe place by asking those open-ended questions and allowing them to talk, allowing them to tell you what their thoughts are and then processing it together. Yeah. 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 That's very true. Very true. Yeah. And the other part, I think not just sex these days, but violence, right? Like uh, I think one of the things I've seen spike in my household due to the more engagement in video gaming and um, even things from Roblox to Minecraft, like there's this just really um, normalizing of violence. My daughter wrote this poem recently, the, the younger one, and she wrote this poem. It was all it was it was all about death and dying. And, I, and when I read it, I was like, oh, you know, if I, when I was a school counselor, you would have been sent for an assessment. So, yeah, kids calling in black. She needs an assessment. <laughs> yeah. But a lot of it was uh, reflective on what happens in Minecraft. And so she had used some of the Minecraft wording and some of the figures. And so 
I called the teacher myself and I was like, hey, you know, I just want to want to tell you, like, did you see this poem too? I know you graded it, but did you just read it? And she goes, yeah, you know, but I knew she was my kids also play Minecraft. So I understood like where she was going with that. I was like, okay, because, uh, you know, it would have been a red flag for me. Wow. <laughs> but the fact that violence is, is really normalized in many respects. You know? Yeah, that is such a great example of how norms do shift with things like media and this game technology and, and just how it shifts our culture and our children and how we teach our children. That's very, very interesting. Yeah. And so that it comes back again to communication, right? Like I sat down yeah. with my with my girl and we had a conversation about death and we had a conversation about you don't come back from death and that kind of thing. And I think the more we engage them in those conversations, talking about reality versus fiction, because you could see those same kind of portrayals in books, even in our time. And but those because it's much more instant and prevalent in gaming, I think they're getting a lot more exposure to it than I did when I was reading a novel. Yeah. And speaking sure. from personal experience, that's those conversations, the, the, now that our kids are getting older, we're getting into more of these deeper conversations. That's where my insecurity comes out. Am I doing this right? Am I telling them the right things? Should I talk to them more? That's tough. Yeah. And so recognizing you're probably going to mess up something, right? You're going to, something's going to happen where you're, or you're probably going to be asked that really tough question. I think my 21 year old, when she turned 18, she asked me like, what was your first sexual experience? I was like, huh? I'm not on the table here. (laughs) 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 So being willing to like check yourself and be vulnerable in an appropriate way and recognize what you do and don't want to share. Right. Like I wasn't ready to share. So I was like, hey, let's come back. But (laughs) Noah and I talk about that all the time. Like what is going to come back to bite us in the ass? (laughs) Yes. Yes. Because it will. And you'll mess up and it'll be okay because you did it from a loving place with good intentions. Yeah. Yeah. Nicole, you recently wrote an article for her health collective titled, Can We Hang Out? The Etiquette of Making Friends in Adulthood. It is a fabulous article. I highly recommend everyone take a few minutes to go read it because it's so true. Making friends as an adult can be so stinking hard, particularly, you know, we have people that move more frequently due to jobs and things like that. And you face this dreaded starting over from scratch in the friend department. And it's become more and more common that you face this awkward phase of trying to meet someone, trying to fit in, trying to find your circle. Your article gives some fabulous advice on how to meet potential friends. And again, I highly recommend everyone go give it a read, but I'd like to take it a step further. Let's say we've met several potential friends, but we still find ourselves facing this awkward phase of trying to fit in. You're trying to get to know each other and you know you want to make the friendship a more genuine, authentic connection, but you feel tongue-tied or silly or like you're going to say something wrong or you fear that you might be judged. It it sounds really sad to say this, but this makes me think of very much like the middle school social hierarchies. (laughs) And yet we still feel this to some degree as adults. It's still there. 
in, in many cases. How do we approach new friendships as adults in a really authentic way? How do we let people in? And how do we let go of this fear of being judged or of not being liked? Yeah, I really agree that that middle school phase, because it just never really goes away, does it? I, I mean, no matter what age you're no. at. No, there. <laughs> Whether you're well, you have car, to go to therapy school. to work through what you had in middle school. Because, yeah. Yes, the cool moms over there, the you know, the ones that got, seem to get along or seem to have some connection. I don't know. But I think being open to, I, someone mentioned earlier in our conversation about new experiences, putting yourself into new experiences is one. And saying yes when someone approaches you to maybe go for that coffee or do something outside of your norm, outside of your schedule even, to really be open to that and recognize that it's going to be uncomfortable. Like there's going to be that space in the relationship where it is kind of weird and you're trying to get to know this person and you're not sure if you're a right fit and but that's so to, to expect that because I think one thing about fear and anxiety is that when we think oh no my life should not be this way it raises our fear and anxiety because we're like not only are we fearing the situation but now we're fear we're upset with ourselves for being uncomfortable so if we can get to that point where we're like I do feel fear and anxiety However, it's normal to be in this space, in this situation, and then try to push past that to go do something with this new person or even to offer to do something or have an experience um, with someone you don't know or are trying to get to know. And that's, I think that's a big piece of it. And recognizing too, I think for stay, like I talked about earlier, for stay-at-home moms, for me, a lot of times my new friendships were linked to my kids. Well, what happens when the kids don't get along anymore? Or what happens when they're not, you know, they're not interested in hanging out anymore? Do you still keep that friendship or not? And that's also an awkward place to be in. And so making sure you're building relationships based off your own needs and connections and not just what's happening with family members uh, has been important for me. Yeah. When you mentioned feeling anxiety in these social situations, I read something that I found very interesting and helpful to some degree, but the physical response that we feel to anxiety is very similar to what we feel about excitement. And so when you go into these social situations, if you can reframe it in your mind, like, yes, you're, you're feeling anxiety, but it also could be excitement. There could be a level of excitement about meeting this new person or going into this new situation. And I've tried it a few times and it is helpful. It, and if you think about the physical response from anxiety, like a slight you know, not in your stomach, a fluttering of your heart, maybe a little bit of, you know, sweat dripping down or whatever those physical responses might be for you. Excitement often has those same physical responses. So it's kind of framing it. How, do, how are we looking at it? Is, is it really something I'm anxious about? Or maybe there's a little bit of excitement there too. And you can go in with kind of a more positive, upbeat attitude as you're meeting someone new or yeah, trying yeah. to build that. Those those body sensations, they can mirror each other, those, those tense moments. And in doing that, recognizing that the more you expose yourself to something, the more you'll probably decrease that heightened level of emotion. So the more you reach out to other people or the more you show up in that space of going to your 
weekly mom group or because maybe the first time you felt really nervous so, but the second time you come back you know you see some faces that anxiety or fear may or even that heightened excitement may decrease because you're back in a familiar spot and you recognize that last time I had a pretty good experience when I came to this group or went to that event so don't give up on yourself that's the other part of that like have that discomfort recognize that it's there and see if you if you come back a few times, is it still the same? Are you still having that same um, level of heightened fear or anxiety? You know, is the vibes good or bad for you? Yeah, that's one reason having a group like you just said, uh, an organized group where they're creating the events, causing you to come together more often is beneficial, right? Like, you know, oh, there's an event with such and such group, I'm going to go. And that means that all of those moms will get together and et cetera. So very true about that. Um, Nicole, we've been so fortunate to have you on our expert panel for the past two years. So in 2021 and now this year in 2020. And during our time together, you have spoken to our community about anxiety, depression, unrealistic expectations in motherhood and the lack of equi equitable access of care between women who are white and women of color. While you have experience working with children, couples, and men, your specialty and passion is working with women. Based on the numerous women you've worked with over the years and through your own experiences, what are some tips on how moms can become better advocates for their health, how they can set boundaries that benefit their self-care and how moms can release societal expectations that cause moms to place harmful and unobtainable demands on themselves. Yeah, I think that, as you said, has been a passion of mine to work with women to grow in that area, especially around self-reflection like really stopping. I think one of the benefits of having a big family has been that I felt like each stage I was able to stop, even when traumatic events happen and kind of reassess my life. And I think I encourage women to do that who come into my office as well, to really take a moment, take note of the things that you're doing well, take note of the things that are stressors for you and figure out maybe there's some things you can let go or even delegate or even be in a space where you're okay saying that that doesn't have to get done or it doesn't have to be done in the way that I'm doing it right now. And that can be hard for us sometimes, right? Like we take, we think that this thing is our responsibility or caring for someone in this way is our responsibility. So that has been a huge piece is, helping people practice self, helping women particularly practice self-reflection and then building bonds, recognizing people in your life who are your support system. Many of us have a support system and um, we don't always identify those people or tap into it as frequently as we can, especially coming here to Raleigh as a transplant from Connecticut. Um, it was huge to me to be able to connect with other women, to be able to find other people who are like-minded about what, how they wanted their family to grow and uh, or parent and things like that. And, and so I had to be willing to step out of those bounds and find those people or look for people who were encouraging to me in that way. And so I encourage women all, all the time to look at what is your support system? You got at least one person somewhere. 
that is that is cheering you on and you really need to just spend time with that person even if they're not local like you know i have my best friend for 30 plus years like she doesn't even have kids and we make an intentional point to talk every other day like just even if it's just 15 minutes to have that phone call what's happening with you okay you know what are you eating tonight whatever it is and just and it just makes i realize my endorphins go up just talking to her like you know there's somebody who knows me somebody who cares about me i care about her and and that's been a sustaining relationship in my life so i think each of us if, if you don't have that person really trying to maybe build those connections or even reflecting on your life that there might be that that person might be there maybe we just haven't nurtured that relationship such great points and tips that you gave there thank you so much for for all of that and as we start to draw our conversation to a close, sniff, sniff, <laughs> uh, would you share a message that you think every mom should hear? Every mom should hear that everything does not have to be perfect. I think we get so caught up in that something or whatever we're working on or whatever we're doing for our family has to come in this pretty package and has to be done just right. And I know I did often, even now I have to stop myself and go, you know what, if somebody's got two different color soccer socks on or we didn't make it to this event or it's okay, like everything doesn't have to be perfect. If, some, if it gets done and it gets done well or to the best of your ability, then that's okay too. That's, a, that's an accomplishment for the day. This is coming from a mom with six kids. So. <laughs> Where everything does not get done perfectly. <laughs> she knows some things about things. <laughs> Thanks, Nicole, oh. so much. We oh. really enjoyed having you. Um, oh, I've enjoyed being here. Thank you. What a power packed conversation this was. I am so grateful for Nicole's honesty and her willingness to share the hard parts of her life and the lessons she's learned along the way. It's only in the sharing of our stories that we are able to truly connect with others and see that we're not alone in navigating the hardships and challenges that life throws our way. Here are our top three takeaways from today's episode. One, forgiveness is possible. Moving forward, is possible. It may not be for everyone, but it is possible. And I'm not just speaking here about infidelity, though this takeaway does stem from our conversation around Nicole's experience with her partner's infidelity. It could apply to any hurt, pain, or trauma you've experienced with any important relationship in your life. Forgiveness in moving forward takes work. It takes commitment. It takes a genuine assessment of what you want, what your values are, what is a priority for you, and it requires a willingness to sit in the discomfort. And in many cases, it may also require therapy. Through it all, the most important factor is an honest and open line of communication. Two, making friends as an adult is so hard. But we have to keep showing up. We have to keep trying and keep putting ourselves out there. Yes, it is uncomfortable. But each time we take that step and say hello, 
join in on a group outing with people you don't know very well or ask to sit with the cool kids at lunch. Each time we take those actions, we are building our confidence. And in the process, you're most likely also starting to form some friendships. Three, be intentional. Take a moment to reassess your life. And don't wait for a traumatic life experience to force you to evaluate the state of your life. Do it now. Really take a moment and take note of the things that you are doing well. And take note of the things that are stressing you out. Figure out if perhaps there are some things you can let go of or delegate or even be in a space where you're okay saying that this doesn't have to get done or it doesn't have to be done in the way that I'm doing it right now. There are some things in life that are outside of our control, but there are always things that are in our control. And we always have an opportunity to put our energy and attention towards those things that serve us best and fill our cup. Here's to you, friend. And here's to health, empowerment, and respect for every mom. Bye-bye, friend. We've enjoyed hanging out with you. Follow us so you're the first to know when we drop a new episode. If you enjoyed your time with us, let us know by leaving a review. We always love hearing from you. Until next time, stay true to you.